Hey there. So if you've been listening to the Let's Make Work Human podcast for this, our first inaugural season, you probably have some questions and we got some incredible ones from listeners just like you. We've tried to answer them all in this, our concluding podcast for season one of Let's Make Work Human, Stop the Suck. Have a listen, email us with your future questions. We'll be launching season two in January, 2023, and we just can't wait to continue to restore humanity to work in workplaces, large and small. Thank you so much for listening. In a world where workplaces are sometimes toxic for people, and humanity has been squeezed out by outdated rules. How do leaders who care create enlivened workplace cultures? This show has the answers. On Let's Make Work Human, we discuss how organizations can meet their mission and make a profit without squeezing the life out of people. The path to how lies in unbreakable connections, clear purpose, and real partnerships that debunk and demolish old mindsets about the world of work. I'm Mo Carrick, and I'm a beekeeper, mother of adults, CEO, culture expert, award-winning entrepreneur, and best-selling author, and I'm joined on this show by my colleague and friend, awesome coach, mother of a toddler, award-winning creative, DEI facilitator, and millennial, Nayrats. Together, we tackle teams that gossip, leaders who are bad for people, partnering while working, belonging, and so much more with an irreverent and honest look at what it takes to make every workplace fit for the human beings who work there. We're on a mission to stop the suck and restore humanity to work. This show will warm your heart, challenge your thinking, and leave you laughing out loud. Hello. Hi, May. Hi, Mo. All right. What are we doing here? Well, I can't believe it. But we're at the end of season one of the Let's Make Work Human Stop the Suck podcast. Good job. Mm, we did it. We did, we did it. it. And did it. oh, it's been so interesting, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. And so before we jump in today, because today is a wrap-up episode, you've been assembling some awesome questions from our listeners, which we'll try to tackle. And then we are going to be producing a bonus episode, which will be a little fun kind of recap of my sabbatical with my friend Anne. So people will have that to look forward to still this season. But other than that, we're going to be taking a break and reconvening in mid-January with our next season. And for those of you that are listening that are on social media, in particular Facebook and Instagram, you're not going to be able to get updates from us there because we are coming off those platforms, December 1. Bye. Bye. Great party. We missed you. We're leaving. That's right. We're leaving. So people, if you're listening and you want to get updates, there's a couple ways you can do it. You can sign up for our newsletter. You can do that at mocarrick.com. You can uh, subscribe to the podcast so that you get updates directly from the podcast when the new mm-hmm. episode mm-hmm. is for season two. You can also find us on LinkedIn and Mm -hmm. we will be publishing updates on LinkedIn. So that's where we're going. We're not going anywhere. We're just not going to play the social media comparison shame game anymore. And so that's where to find us if you want to keep listening in season two, which is going to rock. That's the awesome. Good update. And for everybody who's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you're leaving social. There's going to be more talk, funnily enough, on social. We got we got words to say about it, you know, before we leave. But we're gonna make LinkedIn cool, y'all. I as a millennial am not a huge fan of LinkedIn. I think it's boring. I think it's stale. I think a lot of people are just lying because that's kind of what it facilitates sometimes. 
not lying in a malicious way, but it doesn't really breed connection on that place. And so I'm determined to make that place more fun, especially our corner, and a little bit more uh, authentic. No personal feelings for anybody who is lying on their ins- or on their if, LinkedIn right now. I see you. It, if anybody can do it, you can, and we can together. And also, I would just say, people not always telling the truth over there on Insta either. Oh, that's true. No, I'm not saying there's any truth tellers anywhere, but I'm but, saying there's a lot more like wearing sweatpants on yes. Instagram than there that's is true. on LinkedIn. Yes. I feel okay. underdressed on LinkedIn all the time. Yeah. Okay. So we're going we're gonna to rock that. It's going to be just fine. So anyways, we are doing a rapid fire questions asking. Tricky part, though, is that Mo doesn't know any of these questions. <laughs> she hasn't <laughs> seen any of them. I'm the only one that's seen them. So My I'm palms are sweating. I'm, yeah, I'm going to be asking, and then you get to go first, Mo, for you're every You're going to also question. answer, too, right? If I don't oh, yeah, yeah, answer, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to be yeah. there, too. Okay. I, I'll go second, though, because I already know what the questions are. Okay. <laughs> okay. Are you ready? I'm nervous, but I'm ready. Yes. Great. Nervous means do it. Whatever that chick says on the internet. What? <laughs> this one's... A, okay. This is a toughie. We might just be done here. I don't know, but we'll <laughs> just start with it. What are you worried about in the working world in the upcoming year? Oh, oh I have so, so many worries, May. Feel free. Go forth. Well, we were just talking about it before we started recording today. The economy has big fat W hanging on it in terms of right now for everybody. And in particular, it's not a win, W. It's, it's not a, a win. Worry. It's a worry, W. Because I think that with all of the tech layoffs that have been coming in recent weeks, there's a huge reaction coming to that because the tech sector has, you know, gotten themselves perhaps a little bit bloated and they're now eliminating a lot of positions and everybody's interpreting that as bad news. And I think... It might be, we don't know, but I think that's definitely a factor. What worries me about that, I mean, obviously it's hard for all of us if we have to go through an economic recession. It's difficult on individual human beings and on families and on communities. So that's a worry. But I also worry very much about the impact on an already tattered workforce in every sector who's come through a really very traumatic couple of years of the COVID-19 global pandemic, um, that we're just beginning to get our sea legs under us a bit about stepping into how work can be good for us and how we can make our workplaces fit for human life. And so that, you know, stepping into such economic uncertainty feels really scary. That's my one big worry. I would say my second worry is that leaders in particular forget what we've learned about COVID-19 and try to go back to normal. I don't think we're going to, I don't think there is a normal, but I think it's really important that we remember what we've learned about, about work and how it can be that is enlivening. Mm -hmm. So those are, I would say two of my big worries. How about you? Um, I'm pretty worried about the DEI leaders out there, especially in the next year. I know they're up against delivering very large things for the corporations that they've and organizations that they've joined and are doing. They're doing massive, huge Herculean work. And I'm worried that the expectations are too high and the support is too little and that we're headed into a land where they're going to get harmed for that and that they might not have the support that they need. I'm worried about that because I don't want them to get blamed for racism in their organization persisting or, you know, whatever else ism, because that sends us to back, that sends us back to many years of DEI work and work for many of those people and just the mental health health repercussions that that might have on that workforce. And we don't have very many of them. And so I want to 
I'm worried about them. I'm also worried about the organizations that see that their DEI efforts aren't working the way that they think they should work. So then they give up. Mm. Um, I'm worried that that is the message that large organizations get when it doesn't work. And um, so that it doesn't seem like we should put more resources there. I see like this next year as being kind of a big one because the momentum has slowed a little. I don't know. These are all things I worry about at three in the morning, but I'm also worried about the things you're worried about. So that's great. No, I agree. I have the same worry about DEI and I and I I don't think I mean I like I don't think I hope I dearly hope that the DEI leaders won't be blamed. I do think though that the lack of courage with the leadership team that they report to um, is is likely going to continue to play out in terms of the support that they get to transform the organization. So I I'm with you. I share mm-hmm. that worry and uh, we just we need to do better. I agree. I'm also worried about my teachers out there. I'm worried about all the teachers. Mm-hmm. I can't believe they've almost made it to Christmas. (laughs) Honestly, I can't believe they're still doing those jobs. Teachers out there, good for you. Thank you so much for doing what you do. I'm worried about you. And And nurses. Yeah, all all y'all. We're worried about all y'all. We're worried about everybody. (laughs) All right, capital W on top of my own maze heads right now. (laughs) Yeah, W, worried about everyone. Hmm. Okay, second question. How do you deal with a hierarchical system that seems uninterested in change? You can't popcorn either. There's no passing. Next. (laughs) To the next one. No. Well, it's such an interesting question because, like, so there's how to deal with a hierarchical system, Mm -hmm. and then there's a system that doesn't want to change. And and so I'm going to answer it in sort of two parts. So one one thing that I find interesting is I think most systems are are hierarchical. They're not all always obviously hierarchical, you know, um, in terms of what the power structure is, but they often are where maybe instead of maybe we have a flat organization that looks like non-hierarchy, but then there are still insiders and outsiders. There are still people who have more power or less power in the system. So I think it's a it's important to think about like how do we deal with the hierarchy and or the power structure in systems? Mm-hmm. Because I think it's real in every system, even one without much or any of a formal hierarchy, because I, I believe that that is real partnership. So for me, how we deal with it is we get really good at partnering across the difference, at hard conversations, at recognizing the role that power plays in our day-to-day interactions or that hierarchy plays. And we we name it for what it is. And, you know, an example that I would offer is like even in our tiny system, I still, I have the scarlet letter on my forehead of the boss, even though you and the other members of our team, I think also think of me as a friend and a colleague, we can't, we can't get away from that reality. I own the firm. I founded the firm. So we have to deal with it. So I think we deal with it by talking about it when it feels like it's a barrier, by, by naming where we think it's getting in the way of our productivity or when people's feelings are impacting that. So, so I would say we deal with it through courageous conversations and by being honest about its presence. The resistance to change, I think, is another really powerful question because, um, I would say that most systems, for me, most systems and most um, people are resistant to change. I don't love change, and I'm actually probably fairly change tolerant. So I think what the way we deal with it is we keep naming and facilitating our awareness of the why that the change is necessary, which is going to usually be pointing to the pain. Mm. So that we keep naming in order to change a system where hierarchy might be getting in the way, we keep trying to find ways to talk in a productive way about the pain 
of the status quo and the opportunity of what's possible if we can find a different way. Mm-hmm. And that takes a lot of persistence and a lot of courage um, because we're, we need to try to do that without alienating the power structure. Mm-hmm. Because if we just go in and blow it up and alienate the people who are part of it, we may find ourselves not part of that hierarchical system anymore. <laughs> right. Well, we might find ourselves out of the system or the system might collapse, which means we don't have a job or, you know, other things can happen. So I think, I think it's not an easy question. Follow-up question. Do you think that every system is actually inherently interested in change? Because if you're a stagnant system, you actually are not a system. You're dead. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So if you yeah. be- if we believe that you're a living system, so like every system is actually inherently trying to change. Mm. I love that, May. But- and yeah, and yes, I think you're right. I mean, if we look at the natural world, you know, our bodies, the ecosystem, they're all both are always changing. The solar system and and some of those changes are dramatic and painful. Forest fires, earthquakes, but they matter in terms of the overall system. So yeah, I love that. And I do think that systems, organizational systems also are always changing and actually wanting to change in terms of um, of growth and learning. So mm-hmm. if we're feeling like a system is stuck, like, oh, we're stuck on this hierarchical structure as being the only way we can do business, I think that, that if we take a mindset like, well, we're always evolving and changing, it can create a lot of possibility to then tackle, why are we organized this way? Where does mm-hmm. the hierarchy help us and where might it be interfering? So mm-hmm. I think that that's powerful. You think that systems are always, they're organized towards growth or they're changing towards growth as opposed to changing towards ease? I think both. I think changing towards growth in our economic system is often the case. And I don't think it needs to be. I think you can be a successful system without necessarily growing. Look at some some of what's happened in things like um, the small company movement. Um, small giants is really emphasizing like that you don't always have to be growth. But I I think ease is is another reason to change. There's also other reasons to change such as, um, and maybe it's ease, but efficiency, contribution, meaning, community. There's lots of compelling reasons why to change. I would say in many cases, I'm using the growth metaphor, not necessarily as just expanding, but actually maybe as more learning. I think systems mm-hmm. grow by learning and adapting um, because they must, because the environment is always changing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Systems within a larger system. Mm-hmm. All right, a little lighter one. <laughs> Who is inspiring you lately? <laughs> Who is inspiring me lately? Wow. Well, I'm very inspired by a lot of people lately, but a couple that come to mind are the people that I know, including you and other friends and colleagues who are raising young children. Mm-hmm. They are, are very inspiring to me. I, I am. My children are adults. And I'm still finding parenting challenging, but I have a lot of, I get a lot of inspiration from parents today of young children because it's a tough world right now. There's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of anxiety, and I think it takes a lot of courage to be bringing new life into it. So, so that I'm very inspired by that. I'm also really inspired by some of the leaders that we get to work with in a variety of systems from business to healthcare, to education, to government who are saying really bravely, like there's a different way. Mm -hmm. There's a different way to do business. There's a different way to evolve partnerships. And and so I see that in small 
organizations and like I would say close to the ground and also higher up in CEOs that we work with who are doing the right thing when it really matters. Um, I was just having a conversation as an example of that with one of our clients and a friend, um, Megan Hayes, who is the CEO of Mosaic Medical Community Health Center in my community. And Megan has, and her team have made some really powerful, courageous decisions in the last <laughs> couple of years that have resulted in their community health center being um, really amazing. They just had a no findings HRSA audit. They wow. had no layoffs during COVID. Um, and they're supporting community health in our community in just a really vibrant way. And and that feels really inspiring to me. And it's taken a lot of effort um, and standing in some hard decisions for that team to, under Megan's leadership, to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are a few. Um, who's inspiring me lately? Yeah, I am part of this mom's group. That's, um, very unofficially a group, but we meet sometimes on Mondays (laughs) when our lives allow and we don't solve anything. We just look each other in the face and say the hard thing, say the quiet thing loudly to each other about what is really hard or what is really funny or what is really like wrapping us up right now. And I think the part of it that is so inspiring is uh, the people in my life that I hold most dear are I'm finding are the truth tellers, the ones who are just going to say it how it is. And I think that is becoming increasingly more inspiring because it's getting harder and harder to do that because there's so much self-judgment. There's so much exterior judgment. There's so much pressure. There's so much, you know, like movement to do a certain thing and know all the answers. And oftentimes the hardest thing to say is like, I just don't, I don't have the answer yet. And I'm going to wait until I do, you know, or I'm just going to do it and hope that this is the right answer because I have to, because the pressure is right now, you know? And I think that's really inspiring because when I was a kid, I used to think all the adults had all the answers, you know, and as I become an adult, I'm like, oh, we don't actually know what we're doing out here. We are just doing our damnedest. And so the truth tellers, I think, are the ones who are doing the most damnedest. You know, it's like, I'm going to tell you how it is. I'm going to tell you how I see it. I'm going to listen to how you see it. And we'll go together. But especially these three other moms that I'm hanging out with who are like trying to solve very large problems, but also figure out what snacks their kids are going to eat, you know, so. I love that. It's so powerful. And and it reminds me of another place of inspiration that I've been thinking about lately, which is one. So I'm very inspired by all of my own kids and mm-hmm. um, and the work that they're doing. But one of them in particular is teaching music to young people today. And um, when I hear about what he's doing and how these little kids are learning to use their voices to connect, um, and he writes songs for them to sing that are about things like the salmon and the (laughs) the Pandora moths and is really inspiring for me because the, the, the children are learning the power of their own voice, the capacity they have to be expressive. And they're also singing about issues that matter in the natural world and in the community that they live in. I find that really inspiring. It's really hard work. They're so cute. I know. I know they're really cute when they sing too. (laughs) That is so cute. I want to go to that class. (laughs) So cute. Okay. What if you don't lead people? Where are the, your opportunities for leadership? If you don't oh, I love that team? question. Yeah. You know, we talk about that a little bit in the leading people program that um, you can lead, you can be a leader without supervising people. Mm-hmm. You know, we think of leaders as being um, people that can see the potential 
in people and processes and activate that through their acts and bring out the best in people. And that doesn't have to be through supervisory relationships. So I would say you can be a leader without being a supervisor. And, and it takes just as much effort and courage. So I would say lead from where you are, even if your job is not leading people specifically. And I also think that the opportunity for growth, and I think um, we're seeing more of our companies in our suite catch on to this, there's a very valid role for experts, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. for people who are really good at the one thing and they grow their career through becoming the go-to person in that particular skill rather than becoming someone who develops, a, you know, directs a department or oversees mm-hmm. a function. And I, I think that's really very important for us to create because not everybody who is really good at doing the thing that, the, you know, every good physician, every good engineer, every good, you know, writer doesn't also have all the skill sets that are excellent for leading people. Mm-hmm. So let's not make that the only path to excellence is leading people, which I think in organizational life, that's tended to be what we've done. You get good at a task and then you get promoted to leading people. And then that that's not always, doesn't always play to your strengths. So I think there's lots of ways that you can grow, contribute, have a huge impact by leading broadly in terms of how you influence to activate the talents of the people around you and by being a, an individual contributor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this just happened yesterday in my little microcosm of a family. My wonderful daycare provider that makes my life possible, who shout out to Erica. Thank God for Erica. But Erica uh, calls Crosley a leader instead of calling Crosley bossy, you know, like, and usually it's a joke, like, wow, she was a real leader today, you know, but, um, (laughs) but yesterday Crosley, we've been working on speaking. We've been working on a lot of things, but we've been working specifically on like helping when we need to get asked to help, right? These like very basic, but like complex for a two and a half year old things. And uh, Erica reported yesterday that Crosley was a real leader because she, she like demonstrated all of those things while everybody else was having a challenging day with them. And we got home and I said to Sam, Crosley was a leader today. And Crosley went, I was a leader today. <laughs> and the like, it didn't have anything to do with any of the other people in her mm-hmm. life. It was that the embodiment of that I learned something new. I operated inside of that new like learning and I executed it correctly or how I wanted to. Right. And that for her was like, yeah, I did that, you know? And I think awesome. that is actually such a beautiful, it was such a beautiful example of leadership for me where it's like, yeah, sometimes it's about the other people around you. And sometimes it truly is a practice and you're just, some days you get it right. You know, yeah. you like have been working, 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 working so hard on figuring something out and you do it right. And like you level up essentially. Like, I think that leadership piece is like, wow. Yeah. Good job. Good job being a leader all alone out there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I think that's so true. I think I think that it's really powerful for everybody, especially like when I think about the context of any workplace, to mm-hmm. think of themselves as having the power to influence others around them yeah. to bring out their best, just like Krause did. You know, that's real that's that can really happen anywhere. And I think we don't do ourselves or anyone else's service when we think of ourselves as followers. Oh yes. Yeah. Not that yeah. we can't follow. Sometimes we got to follow. That's good too. But um, it's powerful to think of it not only in the leading people way. We talk a lot about leading people because we're working in that space. Yeah, totally. 
Okay, what motto is helping you do your hard stuff right now? You know the motto? I there I love mottos, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> I love mottos and mantras. But the one that feels like it's been a 2022 theme for me is just keep showing up. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like I don't know sometimes the, the answer. I don't know what the next right thing is to do, but I find it very helpful to remind myself and to sometimes say over and over again, like, just keep showing up and the answer of what's next to do, you know, will come. And, and to me, that's an alternative to like, just keep hiding and staying small, (laughs) (laughs) which is sometimes what I want to do. Give me the clicker. I'll binge watch some more Netflix instead of showing up to the things and the people that I need to show up to. Mm-hmm. So I would say that's one that sucks out to me. What a great about one. You? Try. <laughs> well, I also, I also love mottos. Uh, <laughs> nervous means do it is an obvious one for me, but nervous means do it has kind of morphed and changed in my life in many ways. But the one that's getting me through some tough stuff right this minute is to try again tomorrow. Mm. That like the optimistic like beam inside of me is like, there will be a tomorrow. And let's just give it another go, you know, and also sleep between trying it again, you know, because oftentimes I'm like this, I'm an Enneagram seven. I like to keep trying until I'm out of emotional pain. I love Mm. to just like batter that thing until it is done because I don't want to feel it anymore, you know, but like giving yourself some time to go to sleep and uh, drink some water has proven to be useful. (laughs) I suggest that. Try again tomorrow. Yeah, it feels very akin to the Scarlett O'Hara. We'll think about that tomorrow. Yeah. (laughs) What are you seeing that's working in terms of DEI efforts for small to mid-sized businesses? Leadership teams and founders who do their own work first on their own identity and why it matters to them, why equity inclusion matters to them. That works. Because when that happens, those leaders become partners in allyship and have capacity to not be fragile Mm -hmm. or defensive when they're called to account for their own inherited patterns and power structures. Mm -hmm. There you have it. (laughs) Great answer. We'll just record that. That's it. That's the whole podcast. (laughs) I have Uh, no opinion about that. But that was a good, that was great. And I would add to keep trying mm-hmm. and keep owning it when you mess up. Yes. Like I think that people forget sometimes that DEI requires so much practice. Like go yes. get more practice. Just keep trying. Read the books. That's great. But keep practicing and then own it just like yes. all out when you mess it up because you're going to mess it up. And I think for small to mid-sized businesses that aren't, they don't have a whole DEI suite. It's just you. So you got to keep trying. You got to keep messing it up. And I think that's eventually you will stop messing it up so big, but probably not the first time, (laughs) you know? Right. And it reminds me, like when I think about what works, one of the things that I think really helps it, helps small to medium-sized companies really make progress in their DEI effort is to stand right in the center of that paradox of it's not my fault and I'm responsible. Mm -hmm. It's not my fault that system, I inherited systems of oppression that now play out of my business and I'm responsible for finding a new way to do it, which Mm -hmm. means that as I test and experiment, I'm not necessarily going to do it perfectly. I might do it in fact badly, but I will get better. We will get better together. 
Totally. And I think for small to mid-sized businesses, the things I'm watching that is working really clearly in terms of showing up authentically is to stay in your lane um, Mm -hmm. and know what the lane is. You know, I think as a small to mid-sized business, if you have 10 employees, your job is actually not, your business's job is not to solve all racism in the entire U.S. You can't, right? It's, that's not the role. So where is your sphere of influence and how can you do good, brilliant work there? And the more you can hone in, I think on like what it is you have to say and where you can have the most power in saying that and doing the most good, the better you will be at it, you know? But if you're like this tiny, if you're a bike shop and you all of a sudden have so much to say about something that is outside of that, that has to do, you know, that you've never spoken about before ever in in terms of business, like maybe look at that. Like, why do you feel that way? And where can you have the most push? And what Mm -hmm. does it do inside your business in terms of your own DEI? I think Mm -hmm. often we get, and social does this. I think that we feel often like we have to say everything. (laughs) We have to say something about everything. Otherwise people are going to ding us for not having said something about that. If you don't know, anything about that, saying something about it right now might not be the thing out loud. Maybe the thing is that you need to educate. Maybe it's that you need to do some work in there. Maybe it's that you need to look at your own identity. You know, I think we get muddled as small to mid-sized businesses and being like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're like Facebook. We need to say something about everything we need to do. We need to donate all the money to all the things, you know, but like, where can you make the most difference? Yeah, absolutely. Including within. Yeah. I had a I had a brave leader in a program that I was doing um, a couple of weeks ago who in the middle of my presentation raised their hand and said, I don't know some of the words that you're using. Oh, yes. That's and so brave. So brave. And the words included these, intersectionality, transgender, cisgender, and heteronormative. Mm-hmm. Those were the words that I was particularly using. And they asked, I, I don't understand the words you're using. So I backed up and gave some definition and realized that if you use all those words in one paragraph, it can be oh, really confusing. Me. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And it precipitated a powerful conversation about their own learning. They were from a Muslim household. They didn't talk about sex at all openly. And so to think of these terms in terms of their colleagues and work identity was mm-hmm. really amazing. And to me, that's some of the best work we can do is Mm -hmm. the work inside of us. Totally. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, we all have more to say about that, but uh, moving on. (laughs) Um, What is, this is a really funny question. I really like this question. What is your favorite quote of each other? Like, I think it means like, what have you heard the other person say? (laughs) That is one of your favorite. Gosh, I love it. Okay. I got to think about my my, my May Rat-isms. May racisms. Okay, well, while you think of yours, because there's many moisms, tons. Okay. In fact, one <laughs> one of my favorites is well, this is actually a very tender one, but there's many funny <laughs> ones. But that one of my favorite ones is when you are in a room with a bunch of people and they think they just at they just someone just asked you a really hard question, and they just unrolled like the scariest thing that is happening for them. And the most powerful thing I think I've ever seen is that they're looking to you for answers and your go-to is, that sounds really hard. And then you're silent. 
<laughs> and their shoulders just drop and everything is okay. You know, because mm-hmm. they know actually that they aren't going to get the answer from you. And that's not it. And, you know, that you can't solve it. And um, it's just one of the most powerful things that I think I've ever seen anyone do is just to acknowledge that that sounds really hard for someone and to do it in front of a group, especially mm-hmm. a group that sees you as the expert. Um, yeah. Because I think a lot of people want consultants to have all the answers. So my favorite quote of Moses is telling people that it's just going to be okay and that it's really hard. That it's hard. Yeah. Thank you. I, you know, we're not usually aware of the things we say um, all the time, I don't think. I know I'm not. Um, so here's two that come to mind for me oh, about you, May. Right? One of them is one of the favorite things you say that I love is, I'm in your boat. No, And you've said it so many times to me throughout the years about our partnership, but I've heard it. I've heard you say it to other people too. Um, I've heard you talk to your family that way and I just believe it. And when you say it, it's just a visceral reminder to me that I'm not alone. And, you know, we have other team members in our business, so it's not only you and I in the boat, but no it, it's, a, it's a big boat <laughs> for knowing that you're in there and that you, because usually when you say it to me, you're saying it either because we're having a rumble or a hard conversation or we're, um, you know, I'm having self-doubt out about a direction. I'm anxious, you know, and I might be looking for reassurance. And when you say that, I'm like, okay, she's in the boat. Mm-hmm. You know, I got mm-hmm. it. Another mm-hmm. favorite Mayratzism for me is that you'll say, I have a question. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fully formed. Which is usually code for there's something else going on here that I want to talk about. But it's like a, it's a it's, it's a pause. It's an invitation to a pause. And usually you do have a good question because you're very curious. But um, I I always know when you're saying that like okay we gotta there's something else here we gotta look at more deeply in a good way. Oh, I love those. What is something that we don't know about each of you? Is the question. Ooh. This is going to be harder for Mo because we pump out Mo all over the internet. So she can. <laughs> you're really going to have to dig. All right. Well, you do have one? Yes. I, re- I really, really, really thought I was going to be a rodeo princess when I grew up. <laughs> I really did. I only went to – I've only really? been to two rodeos in my entire life. But the first one apparently had a very large impact on me. I was really young. Um, the last one was like four years ago. So it was just one that really hammered it home for me. But I could have sworn that was what I was going to be. Also, I got given a horse for my fourth birthday that I never saw. My grandmother gave it to me and my parents were like, no, that can't live here. Um, we don't have, no, it, no. So I never saw said horse. But that just reinforced for me that I was going to be a rodeo princess because I already had a horse. I just oh hadn't God. seen it yet. A lot of my life makes sense now that I'm actually saying this to you. Okay. I just want to know, because I've only heard of rodeo queens. <laughs> <laughs> in Wyoming, we must have more. I've only been to one rodeo, two rodeos. I don't know. <laughs> the rodeo princess is a whole new thing. That I, and knowing that this was something that you thought was going to happen, I, I think now it is going to become my mission to make it actually happen. I, I might have made that roll up. <laughs> Either way, it was very enticing. <laughs> oh my God, I love it. Also, I had I a horse. It. That's the other thing that I never saw. Yeah, which you've not ever shared with me. I Even I did not know that about you. Thank you. We got to go out and find that horse because it's probably still alive. Definitely dead. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen it. I have no idea. Dreamcatcher, holler out if you're out there. Oh my God, I love it. I love it. 
Um, all right, what did people what do people maybe not know about me? There's two things. One, my feet are now a size eleven. Then what they what did they used they to be? They were a ten. <laughs> what happened? For my whole life, I was like a ten since I was an adult, and now I, re- I recently went with my son. We were buying running shoes, and I got I went on the machine, and they measured. They were like, "You're you're definitely." on 11 now and you know i'll tell you what the whole world is better now because my shoes oh my gosh how long have you been in 11 do you think well i think probably it happened during pregnancy you're you know your youngest child is 21 21. i know (laughs) i know so for 21 years i've been wearing shoes that are too small which is it it explains a lot don't you think does it (laughs) oh my gosh that's a long time to be wearing two small shoes i know What's the other thing? Well, the other thing that came to mind, which I don't, I don't think very many people know, is that I started to, I, I tried to start my own consulting and coaching company twice before I actually did. Both times it was called Carrick Associates. I had business cards, I had the whole thing, and um, I never, I wasn't able to, to do it. I, I had a full time job at that time. I was a young mom, and I, uh, I started doing it like part time while I was still working at my other job, and, and they didn't, it didn't work out. And so the third time was a charm when I founded Momentum, um, but it was on the back of, of two sort of failed entrepreneurial efforts. And I think people often make up that I just was like started the business and was successful from day one. It's like heck no. And most entrepreneurs, if you ask them, they're like, no, this was not the first thing I ever tried on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is true for me too. Well, I I didn't know either of those things. Oh, both, both kind of painful. Yeah. Well, love there it. There you go. Great, <laughs> great question. Princess. Yeah. <laughs> May the rodeo princess. Um, oh, okay. So this one's pretty provocative. Do you think servant leadership is just a fad? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do. I think it's kind of a fad. I think servant leadership often in wait, my wait, mind, wait, wait, wait. Hold back up. What is servant leadership? Well, gosh, I'll have to do a little research to find out officially. But servant leadership is an idea that was predicated by somebody famous, I'm sure, was talked about and written about. The idea being that you kind of lead from behind. You you are in service to the people who work you know, for and with you. Um, and that that's the main goal of, of leading. And I don't I don't disagree with the premise. I, I do think that as people leaders, we are, it is incumbent on us to serve the people that work with us. But I think we serve other things too, like our mission or our profitability. Um, and I'm not, I'm not convinced that leading from behind is the only tool that we need to be effective. I think sometimes leading from behind can be beautiful, but I think sometimes we have to be out front, man, making all the noise, like over here, over here, over here, because like there's a fire. You know, I don't think that it's a like, I mean, you know this about me, May. I don't believe that any one construct or mindset about leadership is going to work for everyone human. Yeah. You know, we're all quite different. So leading from behind may work really well for some and not as well for another. So, so I do think it's a, it's a, it's kind of a nice concept, but I'm not sure that it's complete, hmm. which may mean that it's more of a fad. I mean, the way that you just said it just made me be like, uh, I've never seen that red flag before. But if I'm like, if if we show up to battle and somebody's like, where's your leader? And I'm like, oh, he's back there. I'm like, <laughs> he's leading from behind. I'm like, heck no. I'm not following that guy anywhere. Obviously, he's following me. But I think you're right. And not that everybody has to lead from the front. But I also, I, it it sounds very, I haven't done very much research about it either, but that it sounds very 
similar to this, like, we are all family here. Yeah. And shout out to Cameron, you all are family here, but like, we aren't all family at work, you know? And it like sets up this weird expectation when hard things have to happen, which is that like, if you're a servant leadership and everything is to serve the people that you, that work for you, but then you have to let someone go. Right. Talk to me about how you're serving them. Yeah, and it's also really hard. Like, it's really hard. And yeah, I agree. It, by the way, I remembered the name. The guy who coined the, the term, it was in the 70s. It was Robert Greenleaf. Oh, hey, Robert. Um, with it. Well, and the other thing that I find myself wondering when you were saying that, this hit me, is like a servant, I think, the, like what comes to mind for me is an indentured servant. Totally. Someone, someone who's like working below a wage that's fair and can't get out of poverty because they're washing someone's feet at their own expense. And so that's a, that's a worry that I have about the connotation. I understand the connotation positively of serving, but like you said, what does that mean about leadership? You know, if I'm looking for leadership when it's necessary and I can't find them because they're in the back or um, they're just serving, it, it's not really as effective. Yeah. So all in all, we think it's a fad, although it did show up in the 70s. So however long this fad's <laughs> going to show up, we don't know. But it seems like it's, it's coming back. I don't know. It seems like it's kind of only working for Starbucks, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Um, what are you reading right now? Well, I have such a huge stack of books by my uh, by my bedside table right now, which is always the case for me, as mm-hmm. you know. Um, I'm reading Celeste Ng's new book. Um, me too. Oh, it's so good. What so is the good. title? It's uh, our something about hearts. I don't know. Our missing hearts. Yeah, missing hearts. Yeah, really, very good. I'm also reading a novel that I picked up that was recommended to me by our local bookstore, Roundabout Books, who I love me because too. I tried to find another novel about Scotland for my sabbatical and I couldn't find it, and so I bought this one, which she recommended. And I don't even have the title. It's downstairs, but it's a beautiful romantic Scottish book about clans in the Highlands. It's complete escapism for me. Um, and then I'm also taking a look, another look, I've read it before, but I'm, I'm spending a little bit more time in Heifetz's leadership on the line as a work related. Is this how you do? You like separate your brain into like various chunks and then offer up a book for each chunk? Kind of, but I only read, I, I mostly read for pleasure and I read fiction. The books that I read that are business books or books that are related to the work that we do, I read specifically for work and I do it at a different time. Like my pleasure reading is different than my work reading. Wow. Those are some good boundaries right there. I guess we're going to have to do an episode on that. <laughs> what are you reading? Um, I'm reading Celeste Ning's book. I'm also um, I'm reading a book about ADHD to educate myself. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading When Women Lead by Julia Borstein. Oh, yeah. Um, you showed, showed me that. Yeah, that it's good. It's pretty good, y'all, but it'll make you think that you want to be a CEO. Hmm. And I just want to check the brakes on that one. I don't think we all want to be CEOs. <laughs> but if you read a couple pages of that book, you feel like you should be a CEO. But um, there is some really interesting statistics in there about hmm. like, funding. Very interesting about when actually the the success rate of women-owned businesses and male-owned businesses like evens out um, mm. in terms of funding and what the things are that make it that way. It's very interesting. Anyways, mm. also all these studies about team dynamics and how to make your team better in terms of diversity. Very interesting book. Cool. And it's with all the CEOs that you've never heard of, which is quite mm. refreshing <laughs> because yeah. I'm done talking about Elizabeth Holmes, y'all. Yeah, I'm done talking about her. Yeah. So I think talking about these 
female-owned businesses, women-owned businesses who like nobody's heard of and they're out there making $60 million solving healthcare problems. It's awesome. quite magical. Beautiful. I got I to gotta read it. It's really good. That's it. Those are all our questions? That was all. Oh my gosh. Those were good questions. Good questions. So that's the end. That's the end. And so I just want to say, you know, kudos to you, May, when we, so we, for listeners who might be tuning in, we, I had this idea of starting a podcast at the beginning of COVID and I did start one all by myself. I interviewed a few people. Thank you, Scott Allen and Susan Hyatt and many other awesome people that I never actually launched because I just couldn't figure out how to launch podcasts. And so when it came around again and I wanted to still do it and I was experimenting with ideas and I had this idea of like, I'd rather do it as a discussion-based podcast with May because she's such a good question ask, and ask her and we have such good conversations. Um, and I said, yeah, I asked you like, you know, what do you think? And you just didn't even hesitate. You were like, yes, let's do it. Yeah. And I'm so glad um, that you've done it with me, that Jordan has been our producer. Hi, Jordan. Hi, Jordan. It's been really fun. I feel like we've learned a lot. I feel like it ha has a reciprocal benefit of um, uh, of helping us do what we're doing with Momentum as a firm. And we're getting to know some really interesting people who listen and tell us what they think. So thank mm -hmm. you for your leadership and partnership in, in making this podcast a thing. Mm -hmm. And we, we've gotten through a whole season and can't wait to plan and prep for season two. Totally. <sighs> Ditto. And I'll see you in season two. Absolutely. Well, I'll see you tomorrow by stepping, but I'll see you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs>